Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn about why sniffing is contagious and how one biologist solved the mystery of a rare tree that scientifically shouldn't exist, but does. You'll also learn why some immune systems can handle vaccines better than others, with some help from virologist Paul Dupre. Let's satisfy some curiosity. Yawning is contagious and laughing is contagious. But would you believe sniffing is contagious? Well, that's what researchers discovered in 2014. And these findings really back up the idea that humans are social animals. For the study, a research group from the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel had 27 subjects watch a movie in a stainless steel, odor-free room. They showed the 2006 film Perfume, which is a thriller about a perfumer-turned-murderer that happens to include 28 movie-sniff events within the first 60 minutes. The researchers hooked up each of the participants to a nasal cannula attached to a spirometer and told them that they were being used to calibrate physiological recording devices. The movie, they said, was just to keep them from getting too bored. Then the researchers measured how often the participants' sniffs coincided with an on-screen sniff. Despite the fact that there was no odor in the room, participants tended to sniff along with the characters in the film, especially when they heard a sniff but didn't see the object being sniffed. Smell is the most ancient sense we have, so it makes sense that our basic instincts make us sniff along when we see or hear someone else sniff. The researchers put it this way, quote, The potential value of such a response is clear because it would direct awareness toward valuable information such as danger, food, or a potential mate. However, if we hear someone sniffing without a visual target, this implies that there is something important in the air and we had better find out what it is, unquote. <laughs> Did you do it? <laughs> Speaking of things that are contagious, let's talk about vaccines for a minute. You might remember a recent episode of our podcast where we talked to virologist Paul Dupre. He's the director for the Center of Vaccine Research at the University of Pittsburgh and a professor of microbiology and cellular genetics. We pushed him on the question of why, from a scientific perspective, he thinks it's important for people to be vaccinated. And other than the herd immunity he talked about last time, he had some really interesting insights on who can and can't get vaccinated and what that means. We thought the science was really interesting, so we wanted to share it today, and we hope you find it as interesting as we did. Here's what Paul told us. In some ways, vaccine, vaccination for me is a social contract. People who have a healthy immune system can easily and readily and safely be vaccinated with MMR. Uh, it doesn't matter that there's one virus, two viruses, three viruses. Your immune system is a fantastic system. It can deal with lots of assaults at the same time. So someone who's vaccinated with measles, mumps, rubella mounts a really, really good response. And um, if we vaccinate them twice, as I said already, 97% of the, the people will be protected. But that's not the case for everyone in society. There are some people in society who don't have a healthy immune response or a really functional immune system. Why would someone have a, a, a dysfunctional immune system? Well, think of a small child who has to have a transplant. That small kid gets a transplant from a donor that's not themselves. So therefore, to stop that transplant being rejected... We have to give them drugs which suppress their immune system so that they don't reject the tissue that they've got because they need that tissue to stay alive. But the problem then for that child is they can't be vaccinated. So therefore, 
those people who are immune suppressed who can't be vaccinated. For me, whenever I say vaccination is a social contract, broader society needs to protect those individuals who can't be vaccinated by believing in the power of vaccination to stop the transmission so that that little kid who has the heart transplant, lung transplant, kidney transplant, whatever sort of transplant, or just has some sort of um, severe immunodeficiency, some genetic deficiency, doesn't have to meet that virus because people here forget that measles is a deadly disease and, um, and, and needs to be protected against. Absolutely. And that's that's before you even mention the the babies that are too young to be vaccinated. You, you don't you don't get your shots until you're two or three. And babies are super weak. Right? Well, those babies are actually um, super weak and super strong in some ways. Oh. The reason why those babies are super strong is because the moms who have been vaccinated or who some moms have also had the disease the mums transfer antibodies across the placenta into the babies. And those antibodies are sufficient to protect against a measles infection in very, very young babies. Wow. But the reason why we have to give measles vaccine later on is actually because of those fantastic antibodies that come across from the mum. Because over time, the mum's antibodies, as the baby gets bigger, get diluted and diluted and diluted and diluted and disappear. So therefore, those antibodies no longer protect, which means that kid then becomes susceptible to measles uh, disease. And that's why we have to look at how those antibodies wane, the mom's antibodies wane in the child, and determine when is the best time to give the vaccine. Because if you give the vaccine too early, those antibodies will stop the vaccine working. But if you give the vaccine too late, the kid might have met the disease, which again is another argument to stop endemic transmission because we can make sure that the antibodies have gone from the mum. We can then know that measles is not circulating, so the kid's not going to meet it anyway in this part of the world. And then we can vaccinate them and then we can get them good antibodies, which means if the kids want to go to a part of the world with their parents on vacation, move to a different country, do whatever the kid does, that the parents can contentedly and safely bring their kids to the parts of the world where measles has not been eliminated. And that's the risk of measles coming back in this part of the world because kids who have not been vaccinated, whose antibodies are um, waning maybe a little bit quicker or a little bit slower, because remember, everybody's different. Um, those kids can be protected. Once again, Paul Dupre is the director of the Center for Vaccine Research at the University of Pittsburgh and a professor of microbiology and cellular genetics. You can find links to his organization's latest research, social media accounts, and more in today's show notes. Let's calmly end today's episode with a little bit of nature. Pretend you're taking a walk through a forest of giant redwoods like I have in my hometown. <laughs> the giants seem to gather closer around you as you wander deeper into the woods. And then it appears through the thick branches, a flash of perfect white, a small stunted redwood whose leaves are devoid of color. You're looking at an albino redwood, a rare mutant ghost tree, which frankly shouldn't be able to survive at all. They're white because they can't produce chlorophyll. And if they can't produce chlorophyll, they can't convert sunlight into sugar. They really shouldn't be. And yet here they are. For a while, biologists had theories to explain the existence of the trees based on a few things we know about redwood biology. 
First off, redwoods can share a root network, which they use to spread resources around in times of famine. Secondly, when summer comes, the redwoods that don't contribute to the shared network are cut off and allowed to starve. Yes, redwoods basically get voted off the island. Naturally, the assumption was that these albino trees had just found a way to get around that cutoff and keep leeching off the roots of other trees all year round. That's why the albino trees were often known as vampire trees. But if the redwoods could reliably cut off otherwise healthy trees that weren't pulling their weight, then why would they be fooled by the albinos that never produce sugar in return? A biologist named Zane Moore may have found the answer. He figured out that each of the white trees grew in a place with less than favorable conditions, and he tested their toxicity levels. He found that the white needles were saturated with the heavy metals cadmium, copper, and nickel, as in levels that would definitely kill another tree. Maybe these albino trees get a pass from the other redwoods because they suck up the harmful materials that could poison the others. According to Moore, there are 11 albino redwoods in Henry Cowell Redwood State Park, but good luck finding them. He's keeping their location secret because, as he told the Washington Post, quote, trees can be loved to death, unquote. You'll just have to get by with using your imagination or, of course, by looking at the pictures in our full write-up on curiosity.com. Have you ever seen one of these? I never have. It would be awesome, though. Today's ad-free episode was brought to you by our patrons. Special thanks to Steve Guy, Kyle Hewitt, Hayden Fossey, Stefan Crate, and Emily for your support on Patreon. We really appreciate it. If you want to support Curiosity Daily and get access to our Patreon-exclusive podcasts, just visit patreon.com slash curiosity.com, all spelled out. We'll also put a link in today's show notes. Join us again tomorrow for the award-winning Curiosity Daily and learn something new in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Stay curious. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.